Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll start the presentation in about a minute or two, so uh, get settled in. All right. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, COVID Plans 2.0, What to Use and What to Lose, presented by Aveta. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's presentation. On behalf of the National Safety Council, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Please, please feel free to ask your question anytime during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible. We might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's introduce our speaker. Dr. Shannon McGarry, Principal Owner and Vice President of Health Sciences at Colden Corporation, a workplace safety and health consulting firm. Dr. McGarry helps clients in determining the origin and nature of occupational health concerns. She has evaluated a number of industrial and non-industrial settings covering a range of occupational and environmental clusters involving cancer, as well as reproductive, cardiovascular, and respiratory illnesses. Over the past year, Dr. McGarry and her team have developed COVID-19 safety plans and conducted workplace audits to predict those working in industries such as energy production and distribution, hospitality, higher education, retail, healthcare, food, pharmaceutical, and television production. Dr. McGarry holds a doctorate in occupational epidemiology from Harvard University, a master's in public health from Boston University, and engineering degrees from Dartmouth College and Syracuse University, and is the president of the Northeast Biological Safety Association. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Dr. McGarry, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Alan, thanks so much. Hopefully everyone can see the screen. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I think we got a great group from around the globe. Uh, I wanna just shout out to all of my fellow environmental health and safety practitioners, you know, kudos to you all. I think 
are healthcare workers and I live with a doctor. Um, my husband's a physician and they all get the, the glory and the doctors and the nurses and they have been working hard and there are heroes, but I think right underneath that would fall our environmental health and safety professionals. And so where are we at, you know, around the globe, we're in different, different spots. And I think um, I'll try to have um, a, a global focus here. A lot of this is US-based since uh, this is where I am, but um, we'll try and get in um, notes that everyone can use as we're really thinking about trying to update our plans. I think um, all my clients internally for my own organization, I'm literally every month, it's sort of like, what's new? Um, you know, we're up and we're down, we're changing new variants. Um, the more we know about um, modes of transition and mitigation, um, the more we're gonna need to keep updating our programs. So I'm just gonna give you a quick background, excuse me, where we're at, um, where we're on, what concepts we need for transmission, and then really focus in on what we, what we should have in our plans. And a fair portion of that um, is based on the vaccines. And so um, what we know about them, so I'll, I'll spend, you know, a little bit more time on that than some of the other mitigation strategies like ventilation and such. Um, and then I have, you know, a slide at the end of my predictions of where the heck we're, we're going with all of this. Um, I'm gonna talk for about 40, 45 minutes and then um, try and take as many questions as we can at the end. I wanna start with this slide just as a way to say, you know, there's too many people talking. I think that the one or two year look back on this is that there was just so much information out there, a fair portion of it, unfortunately, biased and just flat out false. Um, so really make sure you're getting your information from vetted sources. Um, you know, the CDC and the World Health Organization would be my top, uh, top choices there. I've got a, a picture here of US case counts. Um, you know, uh, things are peaking at different times throughout um, the world. We're lagging here in the States with the Delta variant, but we're amidst another wave, and I, I don't think um, you know anyone who's had this before. Or after us is going to um, I'm going to argue that you know we're still uh, in the middle of this pandemic. Want to make sure we're level set on the routes of transmission. Um, the routes of transmission have always been for the parent alpha, beta, gamma, and now delta. The main route of in, um, exposure is inhalation. The absorption uh, fomite route from dirty hands to eyes, nose, and mouth definitely a lower portion. We're not really seeing anything for ingestion. Um, I'll avoid giving you the, the computational fluid dynamics or the particle physics lecture here, but um, make no mistake, uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus is uh, main, one of the main transmission routes is a, a, a large aerosol component. Um, some large droplets, less than 100 microns, um, you know, are going to be certainly modes of transmission, but they're going to fall out very quickly, you know, within a few feet, a meter or two, uh, and largely uh, controlled with source mitigation or masking. Uh, the component that we really want to think about are those um, medium and the small aerosol droplets, in particular, less than five microns. They're going to travel a distance, okay? It took um, us environmental health and safety professionals banging on, you know, banging our fists to say, look, these numbers um, last year, we wouldn't have had such crazy spread without a significant aerosol component. And I think the, you know, the word aerosol is very scary, right? Um, the US CDC didn't recognize aerosol transmission until last October. I mean, it was crazy. So now that we know what we're facing, we recognize it, we can begin to mitigate. I think I put this up here 
because I really want everyone to understand the virus is just doing what the virus is going to do, which is to vary. So this is the family tree, the phylogenic um, spreading of the virus all the way from in our lower left-hand corner, the, the parent virus, uh, virus last December. Um, all of these variants um, um, have been tracked. Some of them just aren't that biologically interesting, right? Um, but this virus is going to continue to vary till we can um, limit transmission largely with vaccination. So I wanna make sure we're all on the same page. Just gonna go back to high school biology for a second. My, my vaccinologist friends and virologist friends cringe because people use the words mutant variant and strain sort of interchangeably. And I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page with the lingo here because it does motivate the conversations we have about um, the Delta variant um, and future variants uh, going forward. When a parental strain of a virus mutates, right? When it copies its DNA over and over again, it's gonna make mistakes, right? So think about laying down a brick wall, uh, you know, a thousand bricks every 10 minutes, you're gonna make some mistakes, right? And those are mutations. When those mutations take hold and lend the virus some interesting property, some interesting biological behavior or whatnot, we label it a new strain, okay? So make no mistake, if we stop the spread, uh, we're gonna stop mutations, we're gonna stop various variants from taking hold, okay? And again, we do that with the vaccination primarily. So uh, the Delta variant is the dominant strain in the US, it's the dominant strain in most of the world now. The symptoms are definitely appearing more quickly. There's a shorter uh, time incubation time period Interestingly, we've got to be careful. We've got good data from Public Health England. Um, the main symptoms of Delta tend to be a little different than those of the parent strain. We're not sure if that's because of the Delta variant is different or if it's affecting um, a little bit of a different community, younger uh, um, community. But the main symptoms of Delta tend to be headaches, sore throat, and runny nose, um, as opposed to parent, which, uh, parent strains, which was fever, continuous cough, and least loss of taste and smell, okay? And so this comes into screening, making sure we're doing, doing good daily screening. So what do we know about Delta and how is this gonna affect our planning? Uh, we know it's highly contagious, right? Uh, if fully vaccinated individuals can spread the virus to others. I got a whole slide on that because uh, we got to talk people back down a little bit. I think that uh, people are qualifying the vaccine as having failed, all right? And we got to reset that expectation. Um, there's some early evidence that it may be causing more severe illness. Um, it is definitely um, evading natural immunity. So having had COVID does not completely protect you from getting it again. Um, we know that our tests are still working, right? So it has not evaded testing. Some interesting things in some various targets are going dark, but we're still good. Um, can it evade treatment? Um, the treatments that we have now are generally pretty broad spectrum, antivirals, steroids, and things like this. Some of the monoclonal antibodies uh, treatments are gonna need to be tweaked based on various variants. So why is Delta more infectious? Uh, it is figured out how to make a crazy number of copies of itself very, very quickly before your immune system has time to mobilize fully, okay? So the incubation period of Delta is just shorter. Uh, about three and a half days compared to the, the parent. Um, and the viral loads are about a thousand times higher than the parent strain, okay? So this should look familiar to all you EHS professionals. We gotta 
keep driving people back to this. We've got to get our plans aligned with this. Um, and in fact, these are your five headings, right? Or four headings, because we don't have a really good substitution. Um, although I think anybody would take the common cold or flu over this virus now, but really want to, whatever situation you're in, whatever organization you're in, whatever is available to you now, and I fully recognize that vaccinations are not available to the world and um, we need to do better for that, okay? That does not leave us defenseless. We've got to see and really have a good brainstorming session about what can go into our plan in each of these strata. What has gone in and out of these strata or options has changed throughout the pandemic as you know, vaccinations become available, as uh, PPE has come and gone, as we know more about administrative controls, about cleaning and the role of distancing. Um, the plans have evolved, but make no mistake, this is the way to mitigate the risk. We think about elimination strategies. We have um, vaccinations, daily screening, and testing. So when we think about vaccination, and this helps us reframe why we vaccinate people, most of the time we just vaccinate people, importantly, to prevent um, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And I think that was a surprise to a lot of people. They're sort of thinking, well, I got vaccinated. Why am I getting sick now? Why, why are we having breakthrough infections? In fact, the achieving a sterilizing immunity or completely preventing people from having infection for SARS-CoV-2 is largely um, gonna be difficult slash impossible. The vaccinations are performing well for what we need to. They're performing amazingly well against protecting people from hospitalization and death, which is what we need to get out of this pandemic. So resetting people's expectations as you're writing up plans and you're asking people to get vaccinated as health and safety professionals, it's really important to, the, to help them understand the purpose of the vaccination was to prevent hospitalization and death, okay? So the COVID vaccines were, were meant to produce antibodies circulating in the blood to prevent hospitalization and death. To prevent um, both infection and serious illness, you have to do, you have to tweak the immune system, okay, and elicit a response in both the blood and the, the upper respiratory tract in your nose, throat, um, uh, nose and throat, okay? This is a very tall order. Most vaccines can't do this, okay? So resetting folks to understand what the purpose of vaccination was. I grabbed um, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, and I think, uh, you know, a fair portion of the world is getting vaccinated with AstraZeneca. The numbers for J&J are mirroring that. Uh, AZ tends to be a little bit higher in some of these. And these numbers literally are changing daily as we get more information. But I think right now for, um, you know, preventing hospitalization and death, the, the far two right columns, you can see all the, 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 the high, high numbers, right? So, um, and AZ falls into this category as well. Um, crazy high effectiveness at hospital, preventing hospitalization and death. When you look at preventing symptomatic illness, we're having a hard time, right? You're seeing breakthrough infections. Again, not a vaccine failure, okay? In different populations, in you know, vulnerable nursing home uh, patients, um, in general population, we're seeing reduced efficacy um, for the Delta variant against uh, preventing symptomatic illness, okay? Um, somewhere between 50 and 80%, depending on whether you have a vulnerable population. Um, in the 50s and the vulnerable populations um, in the 80s, 
uh, for uh, the general population, a little bit lower for J&J, &J, but again, crazy effective at preventing hospitalization and death. In the United States, I can tell you that nearly all the hospitalizations and deaths now are among the unvaccinated. Okay, so we, we, know, um, we know what's going on. Uh, so I were talking about you know, booster shots um, for some folks. The, the concept um, of base rate bias is really important. Again, I think to frame the breakthrough infections that are happening, I think it's scaring a lot of people, right? And um, I just want, so this is just a math problem, okay? As you get more vaccinated people, more infections are gonna happen in vaccinated people. Doesn't mean the rate is any higher. Okay, so if you take 100 uh, folks, you've got 80 fully vaccinated, 20 unvaccinated, you've got four infections, two in the fully vaccinated, two in the unvaccinated, you can see the rates, two and a half and 10%. So the rates are so good, right? This is a gross example. But the news headline is gonna say, of those four infections, um, four were uh, fully, or two, 50% or were fully vaccinated, right? So do you see the problem with the math? So just be circumspect when you see these kinds of um, headlines, okay? The US CDC um, in May made a decision. I get it. They're only gonna track um, hospitalizations and deaths and uh, there just isn't enough time, resources, uh, et cetera, to track all breakthroughs. We've got good numbers coming in from um, you know, various other HMOs and the Kaiser Family Foundation and whatnot to check asymptomatic and symptomatic breakthroughs. Um, the UK has a great study going on to look at asymptomatic breakthrough. For what we know now, the breakthrough infections um, that have resulted in hospitalization and death are very, very rare, okay? You take the numbers that they're reporting and, and it's even lower than this, okay? Because some people land up at the hospital um, for other reasons other than COVID and they get diagnosed with COVID. So somebody breaks their leg, they've got to go to the OR, they're going to get a COVID test. So they didn't get to the OR, but they didn't get to the hospital for COVID, they got there with it, right? So these numbers are even lower. But um, for hospitalization, we're looking for the, among the vaccinated, there's a 0.0047% chance of being hospitalized. There's a 0.0011% chance of dying after you've had the vaccination. Okay, so again, crazy effective. Where are we at with boosters? And I understand this is, uh, can be a contentious subject around the world when some folks haven't gotten one vaccine. Um, what we're learning, um, we certainly can apply. Antibody titers are um, still holding for most of the general population. Um, we're still following trial participants around the world that got enrolled last summer, and we're gonna, gonna watch them very closely. But we're seeing that, um, in the face of the Delta variant, which is cooking up crazy copies of itself um, uh, and um, is highly contagious, okay? Vaccines are holding up very good for uh, hospitalization and death. We're seeing some reduced efficacy against um, infection, uh, symptomatic infection, okay? So um, in the US and um, uh, many parts of the world, we're uh, delivering third doses to immunocompromised populations, you know, solid organ transplant um, patients, um, severely immunocompromised patients uh, for a number of conditions, okay, to, to boost their immunity. Um, the overall need and frequency for boosters um, is gonna depend on the emergence of the variants. 
And it's just going to depend on how quickly we can vaccinate to tamp down. Remember, the virus will vary within me. If I don't, if I'm vaccinated, everybody around me is vaccinated, even if I'm infected, I, the chance of passing on that variation, that mutation to somebody else is much lower. Okay. So um, starting this fall, um, our uh, internal US um, ACIP is going to meet and talk about um, giving the general population, not just the immunocompromised population, a third shot. Um, we know we've got some good data from Israel that it works, right? So they were seeing an increase in, in these breakthrough infections. Um, they started giving uh, folks over 60 um, shots and pretty quickly um, after that, we again watched the um, uh, case rates fall, okay? So stay tuned on that. Um, transmission after vaccination for Delta is quite possible. It was not that. Uh, we didn't, we could, didn't say that for um, the parent or alpha, beta, uh, gamma, but for Delta, again, cooking up crazy numbers of copies of itself. So um, we have good data from Singapore um, that tells us uh, for the first few days of infection, about first five days of infection, um, there's similar viral particle loads, okay? And yesterday, um, we had a preprint article from the Netherlands so this is good. So the first few days, uh, we're seeing similar viral loads, quick drops in the vaccinated folks, extended periods in the unvaccinated folks. So much longer um, uh, symptomatic period and infectious period for the unvaccinated. But yesterday we had an article from the Netherlands, a couple hundred folks uh, in a, in a, a study um, of healthcare workers. They actually um, looked at the viability of those particles. So remember the, the, the NAT tests, your PCR tests are very sensitive. Um, in fact, we've got evidence of people being infected with SARS-CoV-2 and testing positive for a very long time, well after they're better and not infectious, right? So these PCR tests are very sensitive, but we know that they're, uh, those folks are infected, they're not infectious, okay? So this study um, from the Netherlands helped us understand how viable or how infectious someone was. So among those vaccinated folks that have pretty high levels uh, viral loads, we're seeing a little bit reduced um, viability of those particles. So the, the immune system's kicking in, okay? So that's, that's good news, right? Um, we know the infectious period for the vaccinated infected is significantly shorter. They have milder symptoms, generally asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. And we know that, um, mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic people can transmit, but it's less likely, right? If you're not coughing and sneezing and such, okay? So um, again, this should motivate continued mask wearing even in a highly vaccinated population when there's high circulating transmission rates. Um, I wanna talk about natural uh, versus vaccine-induced immunity, okay? Natural infection does provide uh, some protection it's not terribly durable, okay? So we're seeing six months, we see much lower than um, infection rates than naive folks. After that, and this is with other beta coronaviruses, so you see high titers, uh, concentrations of antibodies, and that, and they start teetering around six to eight months, and then around a year, the circulating antibody is gone. We may have some memory, immune memory, but the circulating antibodies are gone. Um, we have studies that tell us the unvaccinated folks um, who've had COVID, 
are more than twice as likely to be reinfected. Okay, so we certainly have evidence of reinfection um, compared with people who are fully vaccinated. Having had COVID doesn't necessarily mean you've got response, right? So we've got some infected individuals who did not develop any neutralizing antibodies, okay? Um, we know that the um, in antibodies induced by vaccination um, produce high titers. They have um, um, specific binding domains that are gonna bind more strongly to uh, the virus if you see it. Um, so uh, make no mistake, um, you can't count on natural infection to protect you. Again, another reason we wanna push vaccinations in our health and safety programs. Um, so for reinfection, um, you know, the World Health Organization keeps, keeps logs of these things. Um, we have seen evidence of reinfection, um, some, uh, certainly some reinfection of Delta uh, after people have had beta. We're watching um, some spots in Brazil um, and our Brazilian colleagues have been watching Manaus very closely to understand um, the uh, reinfection um, cycle that's going on there with P1 and P2, okay? So even if you've had COVID-19, the CDC and the World Health Organization still do recommend vaccination for sure. I want to uh, just take us one tiny diversion here into the flu vaccination, okay? So I understand that not all the world um, uh, has access to the COVID vaccinations. Um, a fair portion of our population, uh, 20 plus percent of our population is under the age of 12 here in the United States. Um, uh, and they can't get the COVID vaccination, but they can get a flu vaccination, okay? There is something about getting a flu vaccination that helps us fight SARS-CoV-2, okay? So there's actually a couple things. Um, the, there's an adjuvant in it, uh, MF59, that helps potentiate the immune response. So there's no cross-reactivity with the antibodies, but um, the, the flu vaccination uh, tweaks certain parts of the immune system to react. So it's gonna increase our natural killer T cells and increases our ACE2 antibodies. So there's other things that happen that help us respond to a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so we have data that tells us, you know, sort of 30, 60, 90 days out from a flu vaccination, those folks who are, you know, unfortunately get uh, COVID-19 uh, have reduced um, incidence of um, uh, infection or sepsis, stroke, um, uh, uh, DVTs or uh, venous thrombosis, emergency room admits, and IC, IC, um, ICU admits. So um, we want to make sure we're we're taking full advantage of our flu vaccinations, and children under 12 can get the flu vaccinations. So it's super important for our little ones. I think, um, you know, so there was a lot of back and forth about temperature screening and all this kind of stuff last year. And I think the look back on that is that it, it probably did help. It was a lot of, it was a lot of work. I'm not completely sure of the benefit, but I'll tell you this, as an elimination strategy, as you're writing your programs, you need to do daily screening. Okay. So after you've asked everybody to get vaccinated or encouraged or educated or however your uh, organization wants to approach vaccinations, Daily screening is super important, okay? You know, I'm of a vintage where, you know, you got up and you went to work and you, you know, you toughed it out and it's, that is not, we can't do that anymore. Sick people are not welcome at work. And so however you achieve a daily screening, um, it's important. We've got to wake up every morning and say, do I feel well enough to go to work, right? We can't have sick people at work anymore. I've got clients doing it with attestations. So there's just a sign at the door reminding everybody, look, if you don't feel well, you're not welcome. Um, I've got folks doing it with an, an app on the phone. 
Um, there's um, surveys that people have to fill out when we then they get to work with a self-administered screening station that they want to take their temperature, they can. All manner of ways of achieving a daily screen, okay? But, um, and they're all, you know, whatever works for your organization, you cannot give up daily screening, okay? In some fashion, um, remembering critically that the symptoms of Delta are different than the parent strain. Um, you know, headache, sore throat, and runny nose for Delta are kind of things that, you know, I've had a headache for 16 months, folks, right? So, and a sore throat, it's like, geez, do I have allergies or a runny nose? Like, we really mean you're not feeling well completely to, you know, be cleared to come to work, okay? So making sure that we're not passing over these symptoms um, versus, you know, uh, cough, fever, and, you know, loss of taste and smell, which you just can't ignore, okay? So just note that, that, that caveat there. Testing, testing is still really important. Um, a fair portion of the world has taken their eyes off of the role of testing. So as you're writing your programs, really think about where can testing fit in? Whether you've got vaccines available or not, whether you're gonna mandate or not. Testing the unvaccinated for sure, okay, is a strategy. It's not as good as a strategy as a vaccination for sure, but some type of routine testing for the unvaccinated um, absolutely makes sense, right? In the return to work plan, it's who's gonna get tested, what type of testing. We've got way more tests available to us now than we did last year. Um, a lot of rapid antigen tests are available now, a little less sensitive than our, our NATS, but um, the, or the PCR testing, uh, but it's right there, it's in the moment. And the way to combat loss of sensitivity with some of the antigen testing is to repeat it, right? Once per week, twice per week, right? Um, can you do it on site? Should you call in a third party, you know, based on the location? Maybe you've got a remote workforce um, and we've sort of developed plans for all those kinds of things. There are creative solutions to this, but please don't lose sight of testing um, um, wherever you can. Importantly, um, there are approved antigen and PCR uh, at-home test kits, which we didn't have readily available um, last year. Where can that fit into? folks traveling, coming back to an office, uh, you know, those kinds of situations um, might make sense to, to do something like that. When you think about engineering controls, um, you know, these are the unsung heroes um, that have gone in and looked at our ventilation system. These are our, you know, our PEs and my CIHs that um, are spending um, a lot of time thinking about something that your the employees you're responsible for are never gonna see. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we move out of that elimination bucket, we start thinking about our engineering controls and we're writing our plans. Um, it's ventilation, 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 um, and making sure that you're aligning with um, ASHRAE in the States and Riva in Europe and, and really trying to, as best as you can. I mean, there's some pretty lofty goals in those, um, uh, those in the pandemic task force um, recommendations. Um, but whatever you can do is going to help contribute to mitigating risk. Um, and engineering controls, we also, you know, always think about barriers. Um, I've got a lot of clients that have plexiglass remorse, I can tell you that. Um, as we're getting back to um, work um, and force, I think it's really important to have a look around about where the heck plexiglass went up last year and, and does it still make sense, okay? You know, I clients that put a plexiglass on a manufacturing line in between each person including at the end of the line in front of the um, you know, fire exit door, 
right? So, so that's crazy. So some crazy things have happened. So it's time to have a fresh look at, um, you know, where you've put barriers up. I want you to consider them very carefully. Um, they may in fact hinder proper airflow. So we've done some um, CFD modeling and can see that, you know, depending on where the diffusers and the returns are, uh, plexiglass can create eddies around someone where they're not getting any fresh air, right? So um, aside from that, um, you know, highly visible people um, that are seeing lots and folks all the way, they can be good reminders for everyone just to stay back, right? Like, so the cashiers at the grocery store or, um, you know, a receptionist, this kind of thing. So there may be a, a, a role for them um, for sure, but making sure that, you know, we're really thinking about them for large droplet control um, and that we haven't overdone it on that. So I pulled up the ASHRAE guidelines. The Viva guidelines aren't that much different um, in Europe. Um, it's, it's getting people large quantities of fresh uh, air uh, filtered and turning it often. Okay, so that's really where we're at with this. Um, you know, depending upon your building stock and the age, you know, this MERV 13 filtration, like that may be crazy, right? But can you get a MERV 10, you know, go up from your eight? Um, you know, most older stock can't, the fans can't handle this kind of pressure drop, but um, see what you can do, right? Um, what quantities of fresh air can you bring in, right? You maybe can get from 15 to 20 to 30. Uh, I've got some clients who are running at 100% fresh air and they're really lucky and they're spending a lot of money on that, right? Um, where, where can you go? This isn't an all or nothing, right? Like if you can't do anything, don't do nothing. Just see what you can do, right? Um, I've got a lot of clients who have older historic buildings. They're just throwing up the windows, right? Um, but, uh, you know, aside from the, the, the ventilation, the filtration, really just making sure the system is working, right? And, and going and doing good audits, you know, are the filters that you've got, are they clearly, you know, inside the housings? Um, are the fresh air dampers working, right? I can't tell you how many times we've gone up to a, um, an air handling unit on a, a roof and the, the, the dampers are, are um, you know, rusted shut, right? So people aren't getting any fresh, the, the, uh, displays inside are looking great, right? Um, but uh, really making sure that you're doing good reviews of your ventilation system and that you're communicating this out to your employees, right? Because this isn't anything that they see. And this is a fair, after vaccination, this is probably one of the largest things you can do to mitigate risk in, uh, indoors um, is thinking about their ventilation. So communicating with them about um, what you've done to, to look at their ventilation systems. When we think about administrative controls, Things have come in and out of this bucket, probably more so than anything else. I will tell you in the far right-hand corner and the bottom, um, hand washing is the cornerstone of public health, okay? So early on, we were scrubbing everything 10 times a day, um, introducing chemicals into spaces. Um, we had a number of chemical um, response, right? Um, people con using concentrated chemicals because they were worried that it wasn't strong enough. And, and so we, we know now that the fomite route of transmission is not one of the largest routes of transmission and um, a good thorough cleaning with disinfection, um, um, maybe more so when you know you've had a case is, is sufficient, okay? The way to break the, the fomite route of transmission is for people to wash their hands, right? Good consistent hand washing uh, protocols. Distancing, um, still uh, important. 
um, in areas where we don't have um, a lot of um, vaccination uh, for sure. And um, masking is gonna be real important. I've got a couple slides on masking. Um, and then, you know, I put meeting protocols there, but it's sort of all of the gathering protocols based on the rubric that you've got for, for vaccinations and ventilation and whether you can be inside or outside. Um, so this, this administrative control section of your plans is really gonna have to be super customized to your settings and um, with a good section on good hand washing and good hand hygiene and hand sanitization. Um, uh, you know, a lot of thought's gonna need to go into this to sort of mitigate risk based on whatever rubric you've got. And then lastly, at the bottom of our triangle, the at the end of our programming, um, we should be writing up what's going on with masks, okay? And so, you know, as I look back in the last 16 months, it's this mask thing is on and off and this kind and that kind, and what do we do and, you know, when? And and I, I um, masking has never been a bad idea. I don't think it's, we had no flu season last year, right? So we know masks work for a number of different things um, for infectious disease. The, the motivation for um, everyone in the States anyway to remask um, was largely dependent upon um, the outbreak uh, down in the Cape of Massachusetts. Um, the, they had an outbreak in a community that was pretty much 75%, three quarters vaccinated. Uh, but um, again, vaccine success story, right? So uh, the morbidity mortality weekly report, the MMWR reported on um, uh, 300 or 469 cases we've known since then. Um, we've got 965 cases. 75% were vac vaccinated, only seven hospitalizations and no deaths, right? So this is vaccine success, but it did tell us that in a highly vaccinated community that Delta could still spread, all right? So there was mis mixed mask usage um, down the Cape. So um, this was one of the reasons that we had significant um, increases um, or significant um, push to uh, remask. This is the data from Singapore. Uh, that I was alluding to, um, you can see the red among the um, unvaccinated, uh, the green among the vaccinated. These are viral particle loads, okay? We do now have that Netherlands data I was talking about saying, okay, even though the vaccinated and unvaccinated have same particle loads, not all of the particles in the vaccinated infected are infectious or viable, okay? There's some reduction, which is, which is good, it's still measure, but it takes, you can see, it takes the immune system, um, you know, a hot minute to get its boots on and get, get itself mobilized, okay? But you can see quick drops in uh, the vaccinated um, folks' viral load, okay? So again, shorter duration, less symptomatic, but for those few, first few days, it is looking like they can um, transmit. So again, we gotta get our masks back on. So masking absolutely remains a critical control regardless of vaccination status, okay? Um, we know that outside is definitely a lower risk than inside. doesn't mean that it's zero risk. So again, as you're pulling together your plans, um, I got a lot of clients that just moved everything outside, okay? But I've seen some outside locations that look pretty cozy, right? So some outside high density situations, you know, tent walls are up. Doesn't look exactly like outside, okay? So just be a little... Look careful about your definition of um, outside when you're when you're looking at things. I want to make sure everyone has seen this slide. Okay, we had some 
recommendations for early masking early on, I don't need to explain to you EHS folks that respirators work because of the fabric they're made out of and the fit you can get to your face. So it's fabric and fit. So when we were looking in the far left at these surgical masks, which are the ideal material, right? Um, for bacterial filtering efficiency, you had huge gaps on your mm, cheeks. The, the, the secondary mask, a cotton mask over it, so two surgical masks isn't gonna work. The objective is to get it to fit to your face. So the um, NIOSH, our National Institutes for Occupational Safety and Health, did a study, um, they were seeing super huge reductions in particle, um, about 95% reduction in particle um, penetrance. If you just simply did a knot in the ear loops, very close to the fabric, um, and then tucked in the fabric and put it on. Okay, this is going to get it um, nice and tight to your face, um, and will help again protect both the wearer and um, uh, those around them. So you know, everyone wants predictions. Everyone wants to know what's going to go, uh, what's going to happen over the next few months in the winter, and I. I wish I had a crystal ball that was accurate. Uh, I think we need to get this off the dime from pandemic to endemic, and, and that's through vaccinations uh, worldwide. Uh, monitoring new variant emergence closely. We've got more um, genomic sequencing projects going on around the world, um, which should be hopefully early warning signs for all of us, okay? Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see that ramping up, and those are public-private partnerships with universities and government agencies and um, uh, so that's that's good. We we need to spend more time and money monitoring those things in the way that we monitor the weather, right? Um, and then the focus um, on vaccinations, really understanding durability and efficacy, getting them more widespread, just getting uh, more shots in arms, uh, ventilation um, with a continued uh, indoor quality focus, uh, masking, and then testing wherever it, it makes sense. Okay. So with that, I will take some questions. Thank you so much, Dr. McGarry, uh, for this fantastic presentation. And before we start the q and I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. Now let's get to some questions. Uh, the first one, do masks effectively filter out or prevent the spread of less than five micron um, particles, uh, the smallest ones discussed earlier in this presentation? They will. So the, um, that surgical mask that I show you, it's, it's uh, that blue and white, it's um, our procedure mask. It's made of three layers of non-woven materials. So we know that non-woven materials have the best uh, filtering efficiencies versus cotton, which is woven, which has larger particles, the way, uh, larger holes, the way to combat that is multiple layers of cotton. But for comfort, um, the three-ply non-woven, they're usually melt-blown or spun-bound polypropylene, polyethylene, um, is definitely going to get you that, that small uh, particle filtration, if you can get it tight to your face, right? So the trick is to make sure there isn't a pathway out the side of your cheek, right, for, for filtering. It's going to certainly help the forward path, but the tighter we can get those to your face, the better all particles are going to get filtered. Our next question, will COVID-19 vaccines uh, follow a similar path as flu vaccines? Every year a new vaccine comes 
comes out to cover new variants or new strains. So will, will an annual COVID vaccine be needed in the future, in your opinion, or based on no. facts as well? Yeah, um, it's highly likely. I think, Alan, we don't, we don't know. Um, we know we need one sooner than later. There's a concept in immunology called original antigenic sin. Okay, and we're watching this very closely, or antigenic seniority. It's well-documented with the flu boosters. Every year you get a flu booster. It's a little different, right? In the Northern Hemisphere, it's based on what's in the Southern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, we, we try and guess. We guess every year. Every year, it's a little different, right? But there's something about your immune system when you get that booster shot that says, oh, I know this, and it begins making antibodies to what you got boosted for, but primarily it makes antibodies to the very first flu strain you saw, whether it was by vaccination or natural infection. And we can see this in cohorts of 70 and 80 year olds. We know what was circulating when they were you know, infants. And so um, we've gotta be careful about boosting for SARS-CoV-2 and and, and I think we're headed that way. With any luck, we can slow the transmission um, and slow the spread and the development of new variants through vaccination, like huge vaccination campaigns now over the next few months around the world. Um, and that may limit the need for boosters to every other year, every third year, you know, as we're doing surveillance and we're watching new agents emerge, watching trial participants and watching breakthrough infections in the vaccinated, that will, that's what will determine ultimately the schedule. But right now, yeah, it's looking like we're headed towards something like that. With any luck, we've got um, combo shots, flu and uh, SARS-CoV-2 being trialed, Novavax, for instance, a little bit more traditional vaccine platform with a purified protein. Um, maybe we can just give people them all at once. So we'll see, time will tell. So someone's asking, what, what evidence or scientific studies do we have regarding lasting immunity for those that are vaccinated? So we've got quite a bit. You saw my vaccine efficacy um, slide. The, those data are coming in weekly. There's cohorts being watched all over the world, for sure, for, for all the vaccine platforms that are out there. It's looking like, um, you know, with the um, mRNA vaccinations, with Pfizer and Moderna, uh, and some of the ABV vectors, the vadnavirals, so like J&J &J and AstraZeneca, um, we're seeing pretty good protection through that, that's, you know, eight to nine month. Uh, so the trial participants from last summer around the world have been um, enrolled and followed for about a year now, and we're starting to see some, some breakthrough and some reduced efficacy. So I think right around that one year mark, which makes sense, um, you know, we're going to need uh, some kind of boost. So our next question, we require a negative COVID-19 test for previously infected employees returning to work, and most hospitals and clinics provide documentation for this. How would this confirmation work with at-home test kits? Yeah, so that's, that's very interesting. So requiring um, uh, a, a clearance test to come back to work, I've got some clients doing that. Got to be a little careful, again, because those nucleic acid tests, like the PCR test, are so sensitive. People are testing positive long after they're infectious, long after they're harm to anyone, um, an antigen test for a clearance might be more appropriate. Um, I've got some clients, uh, so 
the at-home tests rely on the, the uh, uh, honor principle, right? So if you're doing an antigen test to clear people, those are rapid. Uh, most all of them are rapid. You do it right there in front of you. Um, so there are some companies that will mail folks a kit and there'll be a telemed visit. So employees, employees will have to log on and a healthcare provider will watch them swab so that eliminates a little bit of the, the honor principle. Uh, I've got some clients that are asking employees to take a picture of their, you know, the, some of the antigen cards. There's like a, a one line or two lines and you take a picture of it. Um, some of the clearance tests can be done um, uh, like a PCR test. You can do a telemed visit to watch someone swab. They have to put it in the box and send it back to the lab. There's a couple of days delay, but that does eliminate the, the honor principle. Um, so there's a couple of different ways that the folks have been doing it, but I actually don't have a ton of clients requiring a clearance test um, anymore. There's pros and cons to it for sure. Our next question, is there a critical vaccination density needed to achieve a higher level of safety? How and how do employers best address vaccine refusal? So um, that I think that person's asking me about herd immunity. And you know, it's this concept that um, you have enough people vaccinated um, so that you're not um, you're breaking the chain of transmission and you're not infecting, causing an outbreak in the unvaccinated. So for measles, for something that has an R naught of 18, something that's crazy infectious, you got to have like 95% of folks vaccinated before you can protect the 5% uh, from uh, being infected. For SARS-CoV-2, we don't know what the number is, but it's probably pretty high. So the Department of Homeland Security has documents out now that tell us that one to three variants of the Delta, vac, uh, Delta variant is contagious. So this thing is highly contagious, okay? So it's, you know, we were sort of, you know, we epidemiologists are saying 70 to 90% of your population. I think it's probably closer to 80 or 90% or, you know, or greater, uh, depending on the variant circulating. Um, but critically, I would say, you know, not just, looking overall at your organization what the vaccination rate is, but making sure by department by department for business continuity reasons, making sure that you understand who the unvaccinated are. So whether you do have a vaccine mandate or not, and we can do a whole webinar on that, um, making sure you understand where the unvaccinated people are, right? So for instance, you've got a control room, right? Of critical business skill, if those, if you've got 90% vaccination rates, but all the other 10% of the unvaccinated are in that control room or have a critical business skill, you still have a problem, right? So regardless of whether you mandate or not, I am encouraging people to ask, are you or aren't you? And I, that runs afoul of a whole bunch of privacy laws and in, in around the globe, um, I get it. But, you know, as health and safety professionals, you know, we have to anticipate, um, evaluate, recognize and control I can't do any of those things if I don't know where the unvaccinated people are, right? And so maddeningly turning our attention to protecting the unvaccinated from uh, each other um, is what we've got to do. As far as the vaccine refusals go, um, it's tough. It's really tough, especially knowing that there's an abundance somewhere and some people are saying no thanks and there's other people who are desperate to have them. Okay, so that's frustrating in and of itself as a public health worker. When I approach the situation, I've done a ton of vaccine education, it can't be a, a war or an argument 
you're not going to, the objective can't be to win. Okay. These just have to be open-ended, um, as compassionate as possible, listening exercises. So you say, geez, tell me why you won't, or, you know, what do you think? And then responding to clear up scientific, you know, misconceptions, um, talk about safety, talk about efficacy. I talk with these folks about protecting um, their community and their loved ones. Um, uh, for sure, this is the most um, important thing we can do for our loved ones is to get vaccinated. Um, anyone that's got kiddos at home, I mean, there's kids uh, under 12 can't get vaccinated. There's immunocompromised people. There's my elderly mother. We need to form a wall of vaccinated people around them. And so I would bring, I usually try to bring those conversations around to um, protecting um, our loved ones. It's where I go with those. So speaking of questions, what questions do you recommend asking on employee self-help, self-health screenings? Um, yeah, so making sure that you're clearing the list of symptoms. You know, have, do you have any of these list of symptoms? And the World Health Organization has a great list. The CDC has a good list. Um, making sure that you don't have close contacts so that are sick, um, that you haven't had a close contact that's sick, um, or living with a close contact. Um, those are sort of different scenarios, whether you go out to have dinner once with someone who turns up positive versus living with someone where you may have a continual exposure um, are pretty much the high hitting questions. Um, travel questions have come in and off depending on what's going on, um, you know, around the globe and, and generally where people are traveling to and from. Um, most of the United States is considered a, an outbreak condition right now. So traveling from A to B doesn't matter too much. Um, international travelers arriving back to the States, and I think most European countries need to have a negative test. And so you'd want to know about that on, um, uh, on a questionnaire as well. So those, those types of things. And then a fever for sure. Uh, no one's welcome at work with a fever anymore for any reason. So our next question, how long do unvaccinated people who test positive for COVID remain infectious with the Delta variant? And when can they safely return to work? So it's about 10 days. So Delta um, is cooking up an infection um, and an infectious period quicker than it was for the alpha, beta, gamma. Um, and after about 10 days, um, we know their uh, infection has transmitted, uh, has, has reduced such that the, um, the, the risk of post uh, transmission or post uh, isolation infection is very low. Um, but the recommendation still in the States is for a full 14 days from the first day of symptoms uh, that these folks should isolate. And that's the same for vaccinated too, Alan. It doesn't, it's not distinct. If you're positive, you know, 10 to 14 days from your positive test or 10 to 14 days from symptoms. Um, if you're, if you weren't symptomatic, 10 to 14 days from your positive test or 10 to 14 days from uh, symptoms. Our next question, what reassurances can you give people who have not been uh, vaccinated, who have not been vaccinated to get vaccinated when it comes, um, what reassurance can you give to unvaccinated people about any long-term side effects? So the long-term side effects of um, all vaccinations. So if you look at all vaccination history, um, all side effects um, have turned up within three months and that's yellow fever, flu, 
um, the MMR and the autism stuff, none of that has ever panned out scientifically, okay? The um, health effects associated with any vaccinations tend to be very quick. They tend to be allergic reactions um, and none of them have been documented after three months. Okay, so now we've got a year worth of trial data and mass. Our healthcare workers um, around the globe started getting vaccinated in December and January of last year and this year. We have solid safety data. Um, we have alerts for certain things. So we know that folks that are allergic to um, polyethylene glycol, some of the stabilizers um, and preservatives, polyethylene glycol or polysorbate 80 and the ABV vectors, that is absolutely a contraindication to taking the vaccinations. Thankfully, those um, uh, allergies are very rare. We've seen some um, blood clotting issues. Uh, we know what to look for. We've seen some cardiomyopathy or, um, or pericarditis, excuse me. Um, uh, and we, we, again, we know what to look for. So the, the safety, um, uh, is, is super concerning, right? And that's why we're waiting to vaccinate kids. We, we need more trial data uh, for sure for kids. They're not just little adults. Um, they may need different doses even. Uh, for the safety data for adults, um, with the caveats that we've got, you can find them in the World Health Organization and the CDC websites, um, I, um, I, their uh, vaccines are very, very safe. Our next question, can you get the flu shot and the COVID-19 booster shot at the same time? You can. So early on, um, there were recommendations to just try and space things out. You know, folks were getting shingles vaccines and flu and, you know, their MMR boosters and whatnot. And there was some suggestion to space them out by a few weeks if you could. Um, that recommendation has been removed and you can co-administer now um, with anything, right? So, um, and I'm actively counseling clients, if you're going to do a, you know, your annual flu vaccine, you know, have some COVID um, vaccines available, whatever your third party administrator is, ask them if they can, can do your, your COVID clinic as well. Maybe you'll catch some of the hesitant people for COVID that were kind of used to getting their flu vaccine every year. Um, it's, it's, it's worth a shot uh, to try and pick up a few more people that way too. Our next question regarding masking in the workplace with the parent variant, Social distancing was often used in lieu of masking at many workplaces. With the Delta variant, is social distancing still a reasonable alternative in the workplace to masking? I'm not comfortable with it, um, right? As EHS professionals, we always want source control, right? So source control is the mask. And um, I do have um, some scenarios where when people are seated and their distance clients are allowing them to take their masks off. But this is in a situation where we've got high vaccination rates, um, daily screening. Um, most of them are uh, at 30 to 50% fresh air with three to four air changes. We have other controls in place. Again, we're looking for those layers. Um, but where you can't assure those other things, it's best to ask people to put their masks back on. We have time for one more question. Uh, what is your take on offering incentives to employees to get vaccinated? Also, once vaccinated and reaching quote unquote herd immunity at your company, what is your take on removing masks at that time? Um, thanks, Alan. I'm gonna answer the second question first, which is um, we still know there's a risk of transmission after vaccination. So I don't, even in a highly vaccinated community, 
um, I'm still recommending the mask usage. We wouldn't want to take anything home to our vulnerable folks. Um, as far as um, incentivizing uh, the shots, I, I absolutely think it's important to have both carrots and sticks. And maybe now we've hopefully educated and talked on the carrot side of things. Um, and the smallest of thank yous has worked, right? So these should be small thank yous. Um, I've had clients do all manner of creative things where they've asked um, and encouraged vaccinated people to sign one of the conference room walls, right? Um, you get a pin, um, you know, there's, there's crazy social pressure to see a pin that says I'm vaccinated or I voted, right? So we've got a lot of psychosocial research on that. Um, having a manager uh, one or two levels up from an employee call or email and say, hey, thank you for getting vaccinated. Really appreciate, you know, you, you pitching in for the community. Okay, so the smallest of thank yous, cup of coffee, um, people getting vaccinated, getting a raffle ticket for something fun, uh, you know, once a month or whatever. Um, on this, so trying as many carrots as possible. And a lot of that is education and talking and listening and very small thank yous. On the stick side of things, um, I've got clients that are saying, look, if you're not vaccinated, you've got to test once or twice a week. And by the way, you're going to either have to fully pay for it or there's a copay for it. Um, asking folks that are unvaccinated to pitch in more for their health insurance, right? They're certainly going to um, have a higher utilization. So uh, balance of the carrots and the sticks, um, absent a mandate, really trying to balance them now. Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. And also just to let you know that this event is has been recorded and a link will be available in a post-event email. Uh, that ends today. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Shan Shannon Magari, our sponsor of ETA, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Thank you and be safe. Thanks.